In this episode of Rewrite Radio, Helena Maria Viermontes shares her thoughts on prayer, compassion, and love to form a deeper connection with others. My name is Heidi Grunboom, and I am a senior student fellow at the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing. Helena Maria Viramontes is an English professor and fiction writer known for her novels Under the Feet of Jesus and Their Dogs Came With Them. She is a significant figure in the early canon of Chicano literature and a recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the John Dos Passos Award for Literature and the United States Artist Fellowship. She's also a community organizer and former coordinator of the Los Angeles Latino Writers Association. From the 2008 Festival of Faith and Writing, Helena Maria Viramontes. You are here. This is is Rewrite Radio. Radio, This is Rewrite Radio. This is Rewrite Radio. Thank you all for coming. It's what makes us more human because it connects us. Just look. Look at this world. A podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. Um, I'd like to start by first reading uh, just a small section from Under the Feet of Jesus. And it deals with migrant farm workers. But the reason I like to read this passage is because it gives you a sense of what I feel about language. And, um, and this passage is, is uh, 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 taking place when... There's a, there's a family of uh, seven migrant farm workers, two, a father and a mother and five children. And Estrella, the protagonist, is uh, 14 years old, and her father abandons the family, creating greater economic hardship. And so uh, her mother uh, eventually hooks up with a man who's 37 years older than she is, and his name is Perfecto Flores. Now, how can you, I mean, you've you got to love a man by the name of Perfecto Flores. And, and she eventually does fall in love with him. And so, but, but it gives you a sense of, of uh, you know, an encapsulized sense of, of Estrella and, and him, okay? And language. So what is this? When Estrella first came upon Perfecto's red tool chest like a suitcase near the door, she became very angry. So what is this about? She had opened that tool chest and all that jumble still inside the box, the iron bars and things with handles, the funny-shaped objects seemed as confusing and foreign as the alphabet she could not decipher. The tool chest stood guard by the door and she slammed the lid closed on the secret. For days she was silent with rage. The mother believed her a victim of the evil eye. Estrella hated when things were kept from her. The teachers in the schools did the same, never giving her the information she wanted. Estrella would ask over and over, so what is this? And point to the diagonal lines written in chalk on the blackboard with a dirty fingernail. The script A's had the curriculum of a pry bar, a hammerhead split like a V. The small eyes resembled nails, so tell me. But some of the teachers were more concerned about the dirt under her fingernails. They inspected her head for lice, parting her long hair with ice cream sticks. They scrubbed her fingers with a toothbrush until they were so sore she couldn't hold a pencil properly. They said good luck to her when the pisca was over, reserving the desks in the back of the classroom for the next batch of migrant children. Estrella often wondered what happened to all the things they boxed away in tool chests and kept to themselves. She remembered how one teacher 
Mrs. Horn, who had a face of a crumpled Kleenex and a nose like a hook, she did not imagine this, asked, how come her mama never gave her a bath? Until then, it had never occurred to Estrella that she was dirty, that that wet towel wiped on her resistant face each morning, the vigorous brushing and tight braids her mama neatly weaved were not enough for Mrs. Horn. And for the first time, Estrella realized words could become as excruciating as rusted nails piercing the heels of her bare feet. The curves and tails of the tools made no sense, and the shapes were as foreign and meaningless to her as the chalky lines on the blackboard. But Perfecto Flores was a man who came with his tool chest and stayed. A man who had no record of his own birth except for the year 1917, which appeared to him in a dream. He had a history that was unspoken, memories that only surfaced in nightmares. No one remembered knowing him before his arrival, but everyone used his name to describe a job well done. He opened up the tool chest as if bartering for her voice, lifted a chisel and hammer, aquí, pégale aquí, to take the hinge pins out of the hinge joints when you want to remove a door. Uh, start with the lowest hinge. Tap the pin here from the top. Tap upwards. When there's too many layers of paint on the hinges, tap straight in with the screwdriver at the base, here, where the pins widen. If that doesn't work because your manitas aren't strong enough yet, fasten the vice pliers, these, then twist the pliers with your hammer. Perfecto Flores taught her the names that went with the tools. A claw hammer, he said with authority, miming its functions. Screwdrivers, see, holding up various heads and pointing to them. Crescent wrenches, looped pliers like scissors for cutting chicken or bobbed wire, old wood saw, new hacksaw, a sledgehammer, pry bar, chisel, axe, names that gave meaning to the tools, tools to build, bury, tear down, rearrange and repair, a box of reasons his hands took pride in. She lifted the pry bar in her hand, felt the coolness of iron and power of function, weighed the significance it awarded her, and soon she came to understand how essential it was to know these things. That was when she began to read. Last year I had the opportunity, the wonderful opportunity of, of, um, of delivering the convocation speech at Otterbein College in um, Westerville, Ohio, because they picked under the feet of Jesus for their uh, all-freshmen read. And it was a, a, a wonderful experience, but it made me think about what is it that I, I really would like to talk to these, these students about. And I'd like to share uh, my comments to them that I just delivered uh, a few months ago. And uh, I was telling Linda, it's when, I, when I, I've traveled throughout the nation, I've traveled uh, throughout the world. My last stop was in Bahrain University uh, in the Middle East uh, because they're very interested in our work. And, um, uh, but I've never had the opportunity to really talk about faith. I mean, I, I've, I've talked about it in ways that, 
that um, that are the undercurrents of my foundation, and compassion and morality. And people in political circles feel very uncomfortable with those type of terms. And it's, and it's interesting because that's all I talk about. So, you know, I, I can actually feel oh, a breath of, it, of, a, of, a, of relief that I can share these with you and not feel as if I'm, I'm not here to, you know, say something else. Anyway, I, 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 I uh, titled this Revised Life. Two years ago, Cornell Professor of Modern Literature and present English Department Chair Molly Height instituted a new course titled Great Cornell Novels. Her, her idea was to teach the great novels of, the, of Cornell students, faculty, past and present. On the list were such luminaries as Kurt Vonnegut, Toni Morrison, and Nabokov. I was secretly pleased but outwardly humbled when she also included my novel, Under the Feet of Jesus. Without reservation, I accepted an invitation to speak with her students. I never arrive in these situations with preconceived notions of delivering enlightenment, especially when it comes to my own work. In fact, I carry more away with me than I may leave behind as tentative answers. Thus, my initial reaction was to go into the classroom and have a conversation with the students, not to conduct a prolonged commentary on the novel. I have come to realize that, quote, the longer the spoke, the larger the tire. I got that, I got that from, from Sister Helen Kelly, my, uh, the president of Immaculate Heart College, in, uh, in her convocation speech in 1971, and I said, I'm to steal that. <laughs> 35, 40 years, and I'm still saying it. I think it's so cute. You know, I thought, oh, we just had a riot with that one. She was, she was such a, you know, marvelous. You know, we always think of her as so old, and, and she's still alive and still kicking, you know. Um, as I do in most presentations, I first introduce myself, giving a thumbnail history of youth, my family, followed by a description of my geohistory of East, the East Los Angeles community. Through my writing, I have discovered that my identity as a Mexican-American woman is deeply rooted in my geographical location. This has allowed me to stand firmly within the realm of realism, but reach far into the heavens of possibilities. I told him I also considered myself lucky to have lived through the decades of the 60s and 70s. These, were years, these years were crucial in fermenting the nation's cultural shifts by inquiry and or rebellion, and forced us to reassess our own myths. The political upheaval compelled us to ask ourselves, who are we? It was impossible not to be engaged in consciousness raising as waves of organized political movements pushed forward with urgency, speed, and commitment. The anti-war marches loomed large against the backdrop of community grassroots efforts. Movements like the Chicano-Chicana movements were offsprings of the civil rights movements, while others, like the women's movement, was organized precisely because of the benign neglect of previous movements. Large or small, these activisms always involved or were initiated by many like you. I entered Immaculate Heart College, a four-year liberal arts college, at the age of 17 in 1971, where the nuns encountered trouble from the archbishop for their radicalism and feminism. Many of them were, were, uh, uh, were asked to leave the church because of their radicalism. But, uh, but they taught us some incredible things. 
incredible things that to this day I still practice. And to this day, even in Los Angeles, I still, some of the nuns come and visit me. It's so neat. It's so wonderful. I immediately joined the United Farm Workers Support Coalition. It was a natural fit. During the summers of my youth, my father packed us all in his Ford truck, and we were driven to Easton, a city outside of Fresno, where we picked grapes under a brutal sun. I knew firsthand the inhumane work, the child labor, the lack of toilets in the fields, the lack of shade and water under devastating heat. It was precisely these personal experiences that I would later inform, that would later inform the material for Under the Feet of Jesus. Whenever I stood in front of a Safeway market passing out leaflets explaining the inhumane living and working conditions of the farm working community, or when I volunteered in a clothes or medical drive for UFW, I firmly believed I was transporting the world for people very much like my own family. And so my first political act at 17 was motivated by a, by a profound sense of love. It was through this love that I began to believe that that however small my actions were, they represented small pins of light against the darkness of social injustice. And once that, that belief settled in me, I felt extremely powerful. I was not referring to the power of inducing fear, but the power of lo no longer fearing, unafraid to love grandly, fiercely. Love inspired me to pull up my sleeves and stuff envelopes, sing triumphs or weep frustration, Speak up however clumsily, and above all, dare to admit that this heart of mine had the capacity to love infinitely without limitation. From the energy of these convictions, Almighty Hope arrived like the morning light generous enough to give shape and form to everything. Hope held great power only if I could imagine the power in hope. Practicing love, fearlessness, and imagination proved that I could conduct myself in a way that would contribute to a collective, honest good. As I continued preaching the importance of the great boycott, I glowed with the light of youthful idealism and commitment. Interestingly enough, belief in one's activism and actually having a transforming effect on society were two different things. I had a, a naive notion that if I explained the importance of the boycott and the impact it would have on improving farm working life, good and decent people would respond affirmatively with, yes, I understand, I won't buy grapes, unquote. But this was not the way the narrative played out. People remained good and they remained decent, but they continued buying grapes. Our boycott continued year after year without much success until finally Cesar Chavez decided on a new strategy when he realized that most people were incapable of caring for the farm working community because they didn't see any direct connection with themselves. So UFW brought to the center stage the issue of pesticides. Suddenly, consumers' health were at stake and the two constituencies began to share a deep connection. I guess I, you know, I bring that up because I think this is what writers do, especially writers like myself. We have that urgency to seek out that deeper connection with everybody so that we can see one another as human beings. I shared this and other thoughts with Professor Hyde students. We volleyed questions and answered until I was struck silent by one of the students' comments. Close to the end of the period, 
A student told me how refreshing it was to hear my optimism and how original for, for hi, how original for him to see that I truly believed in the power of one more. I thanked him and asked how he felt, what he believed in. He looked at me and said quietly, shamefully, I think I feel so overwhelmed by all the things that are happening in the world that it's better not to think about these things, unquote. Caught off guard by this sad, almost helpless tone, I looked at the rest of the students and asked, do you all feel the same way? What I'm about to describe is the truth. Forty-plus heads looked down and sadly nodded. I share this story with you because in the last few years, I have felt a certain sense of powerlessness over my own destiny and that of my nation, of the earth. Newspapers boldly headline global gloom. My world was so fast-paced, I was speeding full force, making it almost impossible to stop and think clearly. It was not that I was uncaring, but to acknowledge such enormous suffering terrorized me to the point that I self-medicated. A life in ether, so to speak, was what many of us thought of as living. My sleepless nights became abundant while I thought about my role as a writer and what I needed to do to get back that idealism that had become so much a part of my fiction. Without it, there was no reason for me to continue writing. I suppose one could say I became increasingly depressed, helpless, frightened by what was going on nationally and internationally. War is always a dehumanizing experience as is the massive sweeps and deportation of illegal aliens. Our country and its, and its leaders have, have conducted themselves in ways that are arguably shameful. Disconnection from our own humanity produces conflicts between people, between cultures, between the earth and its limited resources. These conflicts stem from the lack of mirrored recognition that my suffering is your suffering. Disconnections also make it easier to act inhumanely if you believe that those you act upon violently are not human. The state of things produced in me a political paralysis, what the Cornell student described as overwhelmness. I needed to recognize that if I had control over anything, it was my behavior, my life. Indeed, it was too overwhelming to join the marathon of activism without taking the most important first step to begin with the self. Rather than allow all that was wrong in human action, I began to seek to remember all that was good. This calmed me down. Calming allowed me to be in a place that Toni Morrison described as, quote, in the company of your own mind, unquote, to relieve and release tension, to acknowledge firstly that I was indeed suffering and I didn't enjoy it, and so I didn't want you to suffer either. This very, very compassion can begin a deeper communication. Vietnamese Buddhist, monk, poet, scholar, and human rights activist, Click Nhat Hanh writes in his book, Calming the Fearful Mind, a Zen Response to Terrorism, quote, if you don't have the qualities of stability, peace, and freedom inside of you, then no matter what you do, you cannot help the world. It is not about doing something. It is about being something, being peace, being hope, being solid. Every action will come out of that because peace 
stability, and freedom always seek a way to express themselves in action. To be, to be that stability, peace, and freedom, Han describes the exercise of mindfulness as a practice of calming ourselves down. Mindfulness is living with the awareness of what you are presently doing. If I remind myself to breathe deeply, I am being mindful of the air I inhale, the scent that it brings. If I remind myself that I am walking, I am mindful of the muscles of my feet, the crush of fallen leaves on the moistened earth under them, the movement of a mobile body. All that is mindful arrives with a renewed sense of awareness that inflates the larger, loving connection to animal, human, and plant life. At once, I realize that I belong to something bigger, something larger than myself. I become both humbled by how small I am and wondrous at how large my part is in this mysterious force of life. As I become aware of my senses and I begin to pay attention, another dimension of reality opens, a truer one that pushes out all that is trivial and allows me to begin to understand connections purely because I have connected with myself first. Once we are calm, once we give meaning to our life, it is, of course, much easier to give meaning to the lives of others. Calming settles into a rationalized state, making one caring enough to become a better listener. In her book, <clears throat> excuse me. In her book, Writing Down the Bones, Poet Natalie Goldberg writes, quote, Our lives are at once ordinary and mythical. We live and die, age beautifully or full of wrinkles. We wake in the morning, buy yellow cheese, and hope we have enough money to pay for it. At the same instance, we have these magnificent hearts that pump through all that sorrow and all the winters we are alive on this earth. We are important and our lives are important, magnificent really, and their details are worthy to be recorded. This is how writers must think. This is how we must sit down with pen in hand. We were here. We are human beings. This is how we have lived. Let it be known the earth passed before us. Our details are important. Otherwise, if they are not, we can drop a bomb and it wouldn't matter. Compassion is essential and always has been for our survival. Compassion is a, is a quality of being sympathetic to the welfare of others, governed by our heartfelt efforts to find our deeper connections. This action alone makes us bigger and better people because we believe, oh, excuse me, because we begin to care for one another enough to establish better con communication. Perhaps compassion can be thought of as giving others awareness of the fictional dimensions of their own personalities that they are not aware of. For me, compassion is impossible without the use, the exercise, and training of a strong imagination. When I tell something to someone, to a young writer, for example, when I describe something I like about what they did, surely I am not telling them everything of what I think, but describing something positive. 
I am giving them access to something that they may at that moment not have seen, but in the future will remember. In other words, I allow that student to imagine and push further what they can achieve, to imagine what can be, what can get better. Compassion is the capacity to imagine otherwise, not to see things as they are necessarily are or as they deterministically should be. How can I hate someone when I can imagine the loneliness in which they are eclipsed? Or when, or when someone is cruel, wants to do violence to me, I cannot fully be driven to hate them when I can imagine them as the son or the daughter of a mother, as a person who is injured. Ancient Greek philosopher Philo of Alexandra wrote, quote, Be kind to others, for everyone is fighting a great battle, unquote. Therefore, compassion becomes merciful, a suspension of suffering, because I am no longer obsessed with my own hurt, but connected to the injuries of others. As a writer, I have discovered that reading and writing is a task of patience and of imagination. I seek the material marks of the world and attempt to transfer them into letters, histories, dialogue, communication. I do so in my life as well. When I begin to sense that the person before me is not simply who they seem to be, but infinitely something more, something beyond that we could ever know, I have, be I have begun to be compassionate. Not by confining that person or myself to a predetermined plot or narrative, by, but by accepting the fact that we all, we all are rough drafts of ourselves, and we need to commit to writing a more compassionate narrative, a more fulfilling script of our lives. Knowing and not knowing what compassionate is leaves the possibilities and the potentialities for creation infinite, unconstrained, untethered, predetermined imperatives. In conclusion, I'll leave you with one thought, one more challenge to your compassionate, fertile minds. The war in Iraq may be thousands of miles away, but we are closely connected, it, connected to it. Perhaps you know someone. You know of some daughter, some son, who, who is there or has been. Feel deeply for these men and women lucky enough to survive the war, but who are condemned to relive in the trauma wards of their minds. Their families will need your help. Multiply that feeling a thousandfold to hear the daily sorrowful howls of the innocent Iraq men and women and children. If you do as I ask, as I do every day as a practice, then you will have the capacity to live your life as a revision. And with that, all things are possible. Thank you. Rewrite Radio is a production of the Kelvin Center for Faith and Writing, located on the campus of Kelvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. You can find more information about the center, our initiatives, and our signature event, the Festival of Faith and Writing, online at ccfw.kelvin.edu and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ccfwgr. You can also subscribe to our Rewrite Radio on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. 
Thanks so much for listening and stay tuned for more from our archives. 